Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. Shalom from Jerusalem and welcome to Watchmen Talk, a series of conversations with Israeli military and security experts and practitioners. And our guest today is retired Major General Mickey Edelstein. Good welcome. afternoon, Oren. Happy to be here with you. Thank you very much. Um, a former uh, commando, paratroop, infantry officer, uh, a distinguished uh, career culminating in the rank of uh, Major General and as the Defense Attaché in uh, Washington and Ottawa, one, one uh, may add. Mickey, your so-called cohort, the group of people from um, several years born in the uh, uh, mid-60s and uh, being drafted uh, 18 or 19 years later, including the current chief of staff, Aviv Kohavi, and several of your colleagues. You came into the uh, Israeli Defense Forces when uh, it was not in its highest point. This was the war in Lebanon. Many career officers wanted to leave. And your group, uh, uh, for various reasons, stayed uh, in, made the army your career, and flourished there. How come... Against the current, you decided that the military is the right place for you. I think it's part of our the education that we were given uh, back at home. Uh, my parents, uh, they told me you should do the best you can for your country. Simply as that. This was the, the said. What, what was their background? My, the background is very is not as usual as an Israeli because my my. My father came when he was 30 years old. He, came, he made an aliyah to Israel. Where from? Argentina. Uh, most of his family were lost in the Holocaust. Uh, and he made a very short uh, military career uh, with his background as a uh, chemistry. Uh, uh, so he was uh, part of the medicine branch within uh, the military. And my mother, she was a pharmacist. She, was, she graduated in 1948. So basically, she had no final, but she was sent to Switzerland because there was no pharmaceutical school that time in Israel. She came back and she made her own career for a couple of years and they made their... So they had instant chemistry between them. Uh, definitely, definitely. Uh, and uh, on top of this, my father was one of the guys that initiated the Israeli nuclear uh, capabilities back then. Uh, uh, so he there, was. There were, there still are, two research reactors at Sorek right. and Dimona. Which one? He was in Dimona. This is the reason I w- uh, was born and I grew up uh, in the in the south. Uh, so we don't have any kind of a very military so-called background, but I was educated. Do whatever you can. 
Uh, must say that he highly influenced me. I, I delayed my military, uh, the complimentary service, by, by one year, and I went to do a volunteering year within a, one of the toughest uh, neighborhoods in Israel. Which one? Ramat Eliyahu Rishon Etzion. I was part. Of, I was uh, dealing there with the Israeli scouts, but not so only this. sort of a community organizer, social worker. Yeah, right. Now, did your father uh, make you aware of his secret work, or did you only have a general sense that he was working where he was? He never talked to us. You know, uh, when I was in special forces, my mother used to say that having dinner with us is the most boring thing to have about work. Because my father used to say nothing, and I followed him. You were either silent or spoke about the weather. Yeah, right, exactly. Uh, but he told me once something very interesting when he was about 87 years old. He passed away last year when he was 94 years old. When he was 87 years old, uh, we were able to fly over to, today it's Ukraine, then it was Poland, to see where his family was murdered. And then I asked him, so now you st- we're standing here, we see the grave, it is in one of the woods there. And what do you think about your life? So when we come up to this work, he told me one thing. I think he, say, he told me it was very interesting thing, intellectually speaking. Uh, I think we had some very interesting breakthrough. And I think I gave something to, to our country to... Uh, strengthen its independence. And, and this uh, was the broadest thing that he ever talked to me about. But, but um, what one uh, may get from this very, very short response that he gave you is that if Israel has anything which will ensure the never again slogan, your father had something to do with it. My father basically uh, is... I'd say his, his philosophical concept about Israel, since he was, he still remembered the Holocaust, he, he faced uh, anti-Semitism in Argentina. And then he came to Israel. And uh, although he was working where he worked, during the Yom Kippur War, he insisted, when once he was not needed, to go and to volunteer to be a soldier. And even the years after, he insisted uh, to do something, not only what he was his, let's say, professional career, though it was highly connected to the Israeli independence. And he told me, today it's highly been uh, used uh, even by our former prime minister and so forth. We always should know how to defend ourselves by ourselves. Even though uh, Dimona was helped by uh, French technology and German money, but nevertheless... Uh, the, the brand, the gist, was made in Israel. This, what it, it's been said, I, I know exactly like you by Wikipedia or so. Uh, by Wikipedia. Yeah. but in, uh, your, in your case. Yes. Now, uh, obviously, you wanted to volunteer, not uh, only wait uh, for the recruiting officer to tell you where to go. And you chose uh, one of the most elite units uh, in the military. What was that? So I, I had a debate whether to go to the infantry 
or to the armor or to special forces. Uh, I talked to some of uh, the oldest guy from where the place where I grew up at. It's called Omer, a small place near Beersheba. We had several people in uh, Shaldag, Seret Matkal, uh, in the SEAL teams, uh, uh, Frutilla 13, as we call it to, in Israel. Did you like to swim? I swam, <laughs> yes, but I prefer, I decided I won't Dry be a ground. pilot. I prefer to be on the ground. Uh, uh, but I decided to do whatever I can uh, to do in the best place that I can uh, and to offer the military the best I can give it to him. One, one should uh, explain that in Israel, at least um, uh, in recent years, perhaps uh, even when you were drafted, there is a hierarchy. You first try uh, to go to the uh, very best units, you, the one you mentioned, Shaldag, the Air Force Commando, or Sayeret Matkal, the intelligence branch, or Flotilla 13, Navy SEALs. Mm -hmm. And if you fail that, if uh, you, they don't have space for you, you go to the reconnaissance units, to the paratroops, or you end up in another unit. But you ended up immediately in, in your top choice. Yes, right. Uh, I was very pleased. Uh, I can t uh, so I had no regrets about what I did. But later on in my military career, I decided to go to what we call to the army uh, because it was a big kind of unit. Yeah, to the big uh, right. Uh, it resulted uh, from the fact that uh, I was very pleased with my special forces career. Uh, but I felt that I should do something something more, let's say, within the army. So, um, first of all, you joined. Uh, was it um, a physical and mental burden uh, to go through the, uh, the early training boot camp and, and the other phases? Uh, I think <clears throat> the challenges, are, first and most, are the mental one the one that you have to face. It's not only about whether it's very difficult or let's say very, uh, let's say you have to put all your efforts, uh, physical ones and so forth. Uh, they train you about the physical ones. Uh, throughout the, let's say the, the uh, first uh, 18 months or so, but I think what they train you most is about the mental capabilities. This is what they are really looking for before recruiting. We are talking about Shaldag. Shaldag. Shaldag, which was an offshoot of Sayyid Matkal. It, right. It started as the reserve battalion of Sayyid Matkal, right. but became an independent unit of the Air Force. Right, right. Uh, uh, so, in general, uh, the, the really challenges are the mental one and the... Uh, if I look what the aim are, what the, what are the, the objectives are, uh, the objectives are to have a warrior, which is part of a team, and you have to know how to walk by yourself, because sometimes we had, uh, personally I can tell you, uh, when I did some of the, uh, let's say, uh, different uh, actions that we have to take, you have people say that are acting by themselves, and they have to take decisions, and they have to understand. And uh, if I may say something about what special forces, what it's all about, it's not about having the best rifle or to have the best shooter, but it's to understand 
let's say, the situation. And the commander's intent. And the commander's intent. And to understand what are the, how can you enlarge, okay, this very, uh, let's say, weakness that you find within the enemy's side and to be able to execute your mission the best you can. But you know, um, sometimes when American generals uh, whom uh, you are very familiar with talk about the next war, they say, we don't want a fair fight. We want to win to have the advantage. And special forces usually do not fight fair fights because they have the initiative, they surprise the enemy. The enemy doesn't even know that you are coming and sometimes that you were there. You, you live uh, as secretly as you came. You need special people for such uh, special forces. Yes, you're definitely right. I think it's, uh, but we don't know. Uh, basically, everyone are, let's say, been educating within the, our education systems and at homes and so forth. But to understand what does it mean to, uh, let's say, be uh, in different modes of operation, it's something that you educate uh, the warriors and the teams and the commanders uh, first and most. Uh, how to understand the situation, what are the priorities are. Sometimes the priorities are to, you have to hit someone, but sometimes the priority are first and most not to be known. So to disengage, even if you are close to the target, and come back another day. Right. And, and I experienced it, many people experience it several times, uh, that you have to be patient enough and to know when to hit. To hit, I'm not speaking about always the physical uh, aspects, but when to execute the mission uh, within 100% of chances that it will uh, you have and, a successful one. And when to abort. So, so we had people in this series of conversations, such as Ehud Barak and Dani Hagari, people who were in charge of Sayyid Matkal or Shayat Eshloshase Flotila Ladin. And there is always the urge when you are on the spot, you know better than your chief of staff, even if he is an ex-commander of such a unit, were you given enough leeway to make the decision whether to act or abort? Yes, uh, I can tell you that uh, in those three units, there are some differences, but many much more similarities. Uh, speaking on the concept, who commands? Uh, and I can even tell you something very interesting. In Even in the back office, let's say, where the unit commander is at sometimes, or higher generals, uh, today you have the UAVs that can look at you. And you have a screen that you can sometimes, maybe you can even look at the force. They broadcast back. We also the Bin Laden operation with President Obama sitting in the Situation Room and watching the assault force. So, but I will tell you something about the Israeli. We don't have the screen in the commander's room. He's listening. By purpose. Yes. Not to, be, to take any decision out of context. Because the one that understands better is the one that's in the field. Uh, so this is the reason that we don't have this screen with us. He, he is next to the intelligence officer or so. Uh, not to be leaded by, only by the visual aspect. But you were on both uh, sides 
of the hill as um, a force commander and later as a brigade and division commander and a major general, um, you probably had the urge to intervene. Uh, how, how did you manage uh, to stop yourself from doing that? Uh, you, you know, you must sometimes you, you even understand the next two steps. Where is it going to? But we must follow this concept of uh, commanders uh, in order to, because this is one of our strengths. And even if you will have a mistake uh, or mistakes, it's better to him to be, uh, to understand, is he going to take me to have mistakes or no? Because it's, it keeps the responsibility on the commanders on the field. There's something very, very interesting about it. Otherwise, he has, he has a, what we call a watchkeeper or whatever uh, after him. Risk averse. Right. And I think that uh, in that sense, uh, I, n- I don't think that I never, uh, I regret it any time that even if I show some, uh, some uh, mistake, but it comes first to the, the former question that you asked. We trained, I think, pretty well, or may I say very well, our commanders how to command on the mission, how to understand the situations, uh, how to understand whether they have the right, let's say, ecosystem, operational ones, to act right. And this is something that this is what makes the difference if I would say a warrior uh, within the special forces versus the army. Ones. But uh, you were a, uh, a unit commander uh, in Judea and Samaria, right. and you had a division commander above you. And trust is probably or has to be a two-way street. He trusts you to know what to do in the tactical situation, Mm -hmm. but you should also trust him to come up through the ranks and feel, not only know, but also feel what you are going through and give you the authority to act. Was that the situation? Yes. uh, There is a pretty, uh, let's say, amount of talking within the operation between the commanders in the field, uh, no matter what his ranks is, uh, and sometimes the generals. And you have to be very precise to give them the, to build the trust. And the way you build the trust is to know how to uh, inform them on the challenges, on the debates that you have down in the field, and to make them to understand the way you're heading to and what the, the options are and what are you going to choose and not, not choose. Let's, let's take a tragic incident uh, which you were involved in when you were the leader of a special unit called Duvdevan. Right. Uh, you were um, an admired and even loved officer. Many people, uh, uh, even outside the military, uh, including Ariel Sharon's family, uh, vouch for you, right. uh, called up uh, uh, journalists and others to complain regarding the treatment that you were given when uh, three uh, soldiers in, in your unit, in your friendly operation, fire. Yes, uh, were fire. killed by snipers in a so-called uh, friendly uh, fire. Um, now, 
on, on the one hand, you say that people must make mistakes, that this is uh, uh, natural and almost inevitable. And if they don't do it in peacetime or relative peacetime, they will do it big time right. in, in war. But on the other hand, there was this feeling that the higher echelons wanted someone on the lieutenant colonel level and your commanding officer, the division commander Shlomo Oren, mm -hmm. a brigadier general, rather than higher ups. What was your feeling at the time? Uh, so, uh, I tell you what, what was uh, before and after, okay? Because I think this was uh, what, uh, you know, there was an investigating committee that... Uh, two. Two, actually. Right. Uh, I can tell you that uh, both told that I should stay in my, in my place. Uh, and I decided to ask to, to resign. Uh, this was, uh, to be honest, it was the, the difficult thing for the chief of staff that time, uh, Shalom Mufaz, that they asked me, to, told me, told him that I should stay, and I asked to, to, to resign. Why? Taking and responsibility? I, yes, I, and I tell you what was it all about, and, and what it was, where, what the difference they, they argue about between the, me and the, my commander at that time, Shlomo Oren, they thought that he was not in, involved enough, not on the operation, but before. In the preparation. In the preparation. And the, the, the difference in this operation rather than the others, it was for a couple of years, no one uh, faced any fire, uh, let's say, uh, within operations in Judea and Samaria. We're talking about the late, late 1990s. This is the year right. 2000. A few weeks before um, riots uh, right. started. Initiated, yeah. Right. Uh, so the argue was you were not before because he, they had no argue. Uh, they, they said nothing on him within the operation itself. About the way the operation, what, was, what happened in the operation... Uh, I uh, planned, let's say, usually you plan two to three cir circles of, uh, let's say, safety circles within such an operation. What I did was were five. The problem was, unfortunately, with two guys, snipers, that basically didn't follow any of the orders and basically crashed all the, 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 those five circles. Uh, not only them, but it was one of the guys that killed uh, was killed. He also uh, did it. Uh, and uh, there were sergeants or corporals, right? Sergeants. Uh, it, it comes to something very much more complicated. It's a group that I will I ask to uh, to execute. I mean, to, to make them to leave the unit before. I was not approved about it, so it was pretty complicated. Uh, but it, 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 from my perspective, the, the reason that I asked to resign because of, was the results. Uh, but as a part of ministerial responsibility, not, not of any personal liability of yours. Right. Uh, uh, and this is the reason that I asked, and even I told uh, my friends uh, from uh, Ariel Sharon's sons and others, 
I really, really appreciate your friendship and your support. However, I'm not going to follow what you ask me. And it's not about my military career, it doesn't matter for me. It's part of my the way I, I execute my responsibility. I had a huge argument with my lawyer at that time, a great guy, unfortunately he passed away a year ago, Elizabeth. He told me that it's a mistake, it will ruin my career, maybe they will, if I resign, they will ask you that it means that I have the liability, the criminal liability and so forth. I told him it's not, not all, all about, about criminal liability, but sometimes it's about my- It's your values. Right. And he pre- appreciated. But, but the real problem was that you were not given command of Shaldag, which was the next step. Right, right. Uh, I was supposed to take a command a couple of months after. Uh, later on, uh, John Mofaz uh, asked to talk to me about his uh, mistake, but it doesn't matter. I understood. I, I didn't feel, uh, I didn't like the way he behaved in that time, but it was his decision. His own, uh, let's say, uh, arguments, whether I like them or not. But this is the way it works in military. Um, and late the year, two years after they asked me to take command on Shaldag, I decided not to do it. You decided not to do it. You uh, were in charge of a paratroop battalion and then a brigade um, in the territory. In between, before taking the command of brigade, I was commanding. That time they asked me to take again the Shaldag. I decided not. And they, they, actually, they Halus asked me to take command over the command of special forces. In the Air Force. In the Air Force, right. In the Air Force. Halutz being the uh, Air Force chiefs, later right. uh, chief of staff. We are drawing to the end of our first uh, segment, our first uh, talk. But was the approach which you just expressed common to your colleagues? Would most of the officers of your rank, mid-career, in charge of a battalion, a very coveted position, from that you go to a brigade and perhaps to a general officer position. Is that the usual attitude of Israeli officers or some of them are more career oriented? I think most are high follow the values. Not everyone, I know it, okay? Uh, But I think many do follow their, uh, let's say, uh, their values. I saw it in special forces several times, also in Seret Matkal and other places. The people say, okay, I made a mistake. I'm taking the responsibility. doesn't matter. And you know some of the, those actions in Selim and others, people took responsibility. Now, General Edelstein, uh, you uh, were later the uh, commanding uh, officer of uh, an infantry brigade, Nahal Brigade, during the fighting in Lebanon in 2006. And you were also in charge of the Gaza division in uh, the fighting uh, in Gaza in 2004, as well as chief paratroop and infantry officers, officer. And uh, you had innovative ideas regarding the amalgamation or reorganization of all special forces in the IDF. So this is going to be uh, one of the topics of our next talk, in addition to your time as defense attaché in North America. For the time being, Mickey Edelstein, Major General, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Amir. (laughs) 
Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.